On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to be with you again. Interesting topic on the schedule for today. Yeah, it is. You know, it seems like every probably 12 to 18 months or so, I start getting phone calls from clients about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And it seems to directly correlate with what these, you know, what these assets are doing out in the marketplace. And you know, lately, Bitcoin's been on a tear. And so it's it's one that's back on the radar again. And we've had, it seems like we've had two major waves where you had Bitcoin first went, I think back in 2017, 2018, went up to maybe 18,000 a coin. And then it was 2021, I guess, or maybe 2020, it went up to about 66,000 a coin. And each time was followed by pretty big sell-offs. Now we're up in the mid-30s again. So it's sort of back in it's back in uh, in the conversation. And particularly because now they're talking about packaging this into an ET- into one or more or several ETFs that, that will allow them to be kind of more broadly traded and get a little bit more institutional interest in cryptocurrencies uh, as an asset class, but Bitcoin specifically. And so with that in mind, I've got a fantastic guest I've been wanting to get on here for a long time. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. I have on Natalie Brunel. She is also a podcast host. Uh, she's got a, a, a podcast called Coin Stories, which I highly recommend everybody give a listen to if they're curious about this space. Big background in journalism and uh, really excited to have have you on here today, Natalie. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So one thing I want to start with, you know, in prep for this, I was actually reading your background. And I think that your journey into Bitcoin is actually where I want to start. Because honestly, I got to be honest with you, they didn't read it until last night. But your family immigrated here from Poland. They really searching for the American dream, searching for for I know what everyone that's come to this country has been after. And there's, you know, some fits and starts along the way for you. But just share that story with with us and because it's a big part, I think, of what led you into Bitcoin. Absolutely. I think uh, my background really is what motivated me and planted a seed a very long time ago. Uh, my family is from Poland. My parents grew up under communism. There was very little sense of social mobility where they grew up. And ironically, everything that was amazing when they were growing up was made in America. So my mom dreamt the American dream and she really wanted to come here. She wanted her children to be born here um, and she wanted to, to give them opportunity and for them to get an education in the United States. And she tried every single year. Um, she tried for the lottery, the visa lottery. It's it's It was very, very difficult to be able to try to immigrate to the United States. And the opportunity did not come until my mom was 38. My dad was 41. So by that point, you know, they were at a point where they they thought maybe we should stay, especially my dad. My dad said, we we know this country. We don't know the language. We'll be starting over. Um, I was five at the time. And and my mom said, no, their, their lives, they, they will have more opportunity if we still go to the United States and take a chance. So really grateful for my mom doing that. And uh, yeah, they started over in their late thirties, early forties worked so hard. And my dad would wake up at three o'clock in the morning to head to work. Um, I, I just remember him scraping the, 
the frost off of his car because we we could only afford a tiny apartment where they slept on the sofa and uh, and we didn't have a garage. I thought you were wealthy if you had a garage. And I, I really just I had uh, I was motivated to get a good education and to work hard so that I could justify the sacrifice that they made. So I was always motivated to become financially secure and to get an education. And uh, and I was inspired by their hard work. So by the time I was in high school, they were finally able to get a small uh, townhouse outside of Chicago. And then I went off to college and the great financial crisis hit. So just as they had finally settled into a small version of the American dream, a modest one, they lost everything seemingly overnight. They went bankrupt. They had to um, move into an a, a sp- even smaller apartment than the one we were in before. And and I saw it just really crush them both economically and, and, and crush their spirits and their motivation. And so... Uh, I, I sort of, I think that was where the seed was planted, that something in the system is very wrong. Something is broken because this isn't what the American dream stands for. The American dream is about the fact that if you work hard, you can achieve anything you want. You can at least certainly take care of your family, right? And be part of the middle class and and contribute to society. And and I saw that American dream declining. And, and at that time, I, I entered into a career as a reporter. So I had the chance to meet other families in small and large communities across the country who were facing a lot of the same issues as my parents. The fact that things were sort of getting harder, the goalpost was moving in terms of what is financial security, everything that mattered was getting more expensive, real estate, cost of education, cost of medicine. And I did not know what the root problem was until I stumbled upon Bitcoin and started studying the history of money. So I know that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I was a reporter in 2017, discovered Bitcoin, was very skeptical like so many people, uh, and eventually started to really study it and went down the rabbit hole and realized that this could solve the very problems that so many people are facing in both America as well as, as countries around the world. Yeah, you bring up some great points. And first, to your parents, that's always, to me, the most amazing story when you have people that, particularly with young kids, you know, I've got two young kids that, that will pick up and uproot their lives and, and start completely new. And and it was based on this dream that you could come here and, and do amazing, great things. And, and you know, I'm, I'm an optimistic person, so I still, I still believe that that is largely the case. But it's harder. Anybody that says it's not it, it harder is really not being honest. If you look at you know, statistically, even since Nixon took us off the gold standard in the 1970s, 1972, I guess it was basic, you know, your basic wages of most Americans have been flat. And what you found is that you've gotten a greater concentration of wealth. Those are the very top. And I'm all for those at the very top doing well also. But you found that the masses of people have been kind of stuck. And I think that's because they have not been able to benefit from unsound money, quite frankly. And by any measure, since really since the, the inception of the Federal Reserve, but particularly since the 1970s, we've had unsound money. And, and I think that that's, um, that's where something like Bitcoin becomes becomes pretty interesting. So you're, you're a reporter. You discover this thing called Bitcoin. Most people, when they ask me what it is, and, and pretend you're talking to a kindergartner here in terms of, in terms of knowledge about cryptocurrencies, because it's not definitely not my, my primary space. The way that I understand it is essentially you've got a digital asset here that is limited by the algorithm in terms of how much of this thing can be can be produced. Explain it to me since now you've been in the space since 2017. Tell me what cryptocurrency is. Tell me what Bitcoin is. And then then, then I want to dive into what got you so interested in it, looking at this as an, an area really you've focused your entire career around now. 
Yeah. So obviously Bitcoin I've now come to, to learn is very different from crypto, the industry and, and Bitcoin is a new form of money that is completely decentralized and it's scarce. I think those are the two most important properties because when we think about the money that we know and use today, first of all, it is already all electronic. We're, we're dealing with digital ledgers that are controlled by central authorities, whether they be banks or governments, and they have to give you permission in order to send your own money. And the second thing is is they print money. So they expand the supply and that dilutes the value of everyone's units of currency. Uh, so Bitcoin is the opposite of that. Instead of having a central authority, it is a permissionless open network that is completely decentralized with no uh, central point of failure, uh, no headquarters, no language, no president, no CEO, and it's scarce. So there will only ever be 21 million units. No one can manipulate it and no one can inflate it. And I think that that's really powerful because as you dig into the history of money, you realize that in in the past with other empires and nations, even when they've been global reserve currencies, at some point, rulers have diluted the currency in order to finance government projects or wars. And unfortunately, that has led to a decline in, in society and, and it's allowed for economic decay to eventually set in. And another nation sometimes took over. Took over. So I think when we look at history, it really informs what could possibly happen when we manipulate money and and there are a few people in charge who basically have a monopoly and they tend to benefit from it through the form of the Cantillon effect and everyone else is working harder and harder for money that's continually diluting and worthless. So for me, Bitcoin represents the opportunity to have a form of money that no one can control, that no one can manipulate, that offers you direct property rights, a bare instrument that you can take custody of and no one can seize or ever take away from you. And I think in this world, especially today, that's incredibly powerful. Let's talk about the Cantillon effect a little bit, just um, to, to bring our, our listeners up to speed. Basically, you're talking about sort of the moral hazard that's in place when you're the world's reserve currency, essentially. Uh, I Actually, actually, more than that, because with reserve currency, there's also the dilemma of running trade deficits, which hollows out the middle class and the and the industrial base. But really, the Cantillon is a, effect is about if you are closest to the money printer. And so basically, that would be the government, the central bank, as well as people who are, are close to that world, Wall Street firms, massive corporations that have great credit ratings, wealthy people, uh, they benefit the most when new money is issued because they get those initial dollars first and then it trickles down and and people at the at the at the end of the of the line uh, the poorer that you are you are last to get those dollars and so um unfortunately with inflation as they dilute the money supply the people at the top closest to the money printer benefit the most they have a disproportionate advantage and the people at the end of that line have the least advantage and and they're getting poorer and poorer I think there's a lot of it's interesting that you bring that up in terms of who's closest to the money, because, you know, one of the things that that I talk to clients about all the time is, is, you know, they'll look out at the economic landscape. And, and you know, again, there's some really positive thing happen, things happening, but there's also some stuff that's quite frankly kind of scary. And they're like, well, how, you know, how can you be invested in equities in this kind of environment? And there's there's a lot of reasons. But one of them is the the economy. And this is something I was saying to people at the beginning of the year. The economy is often disassociated, quite frankly, from what's happening in the financial markets. You know, I live at, I live here in the desert, desert southwest in Arizona. If there's a rainstorm, the water goes to the path of least resistance, which is the desert washes. It, it sort of accumulates and runs down there as a torrent. 
the financial markets are a lot like that. And so what's interesting is you had Silicon Valley, Valley Bank fail at the beginning of the year. You had a couple other banks fail as well. You looked at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet from declining the entire 2022, all of a sudden it takes a pop-up. Well, what do equities do? Equities took a pop-up in the beginning of the year as well. It's really, it's direct, it's it's a liquidity measure at this point more than it is um, more than it is real economic, I guess, progress. And so that's a really interesting point that you, that you bring up as, as well. And I think that those that are, that are closest to that benefit, again, to a point. But at some point, um, at some point, you got to be bringing everybody along for the ride. I mean, which, or else it's a recipe for for some social, some some social things that necessarily aren't aren't in anybody's best interest. Well, and we're really seeing that, right? Because younger generations now feel very priced out of things like the real estate market. And mm -hmm. they look at some of the stocks that have performed so well and generated wealth for previous generations and purchasing one share, it costs a lot of money. And so- People are increasingly left behind, and that's because when the new money is issued, it generally creates more and more asset inflation. And disproportionately, there are certain members of society who own more assets, who own more equities, who own more real estate. And that's really sad because a thriving middle class, I think, depends on the ability to be able to own a piece of property and to be able to plan for your retirement. But I think when we decoupled from a commodity like gold, and we went on this total fiat standard and further and further into debt because we are the global reserve currency and we really abused that power, we came into a situation where it's really difficult to save. Capitalism is about saving so that you can accumulate capital to then invest. Investment actually carries risk. And so people aren't able to just put their money in the bank and allow for it to accumulate in value to, to take care of themselves in the future, take care of their families, plan for college educations and all that. They have to risk it. And, and with real estate, you know, you have everything from taxes to maintenance. What if the laws change in that city? And now with equities, what, what's going to happen to that, that company in 10 years? Can you trust the leadership? But, but that's essentially what has, has been encouraging money to pool in that asset class is the fact that you can't retain value just, just through saving the currency. You have to put it to work and generate a yield. And so money is going into companies that have no real growth, no real value, right? And they're able to, at low interest rates over the last decade, they were able to buy back stocks, you know, take on more and more debt. Meanwhile, these companies are barely generating any revenues. I mean, a lot of them are zombie companies. Our country is really a, a, a zombie company, if, if you think about it, because we are taking in less than we are spending. Um, so that's a real problem because that, again, doesn't represent prosperity and true productivity. And it's going to cause us to continue to be on this decline. We were once this superpower, the world's greatest creditor nation, and now we're just going further and further into debt and we're hollowing out uh, the base. And so you can see why there's populism uprising. People don't know where to place the blame. And unfortunately, politics tends to be the outlet and social media is a great place to vent it. But we have to look deeper than that because truly it's the money. People are working harder for money that's worth less. The wages that you earned at a job 30 years ago that could have afforded you a house in the suburbs, now you need two to three incomes to maybe afford the same thing. Something is clearly wrong. And what's amazing is we actually have a solution. I mean, if I didn't know about Bitcoin, I would be far more pessimistic about the future and how we address a lot of these issues. But with Bitcoin and with this incredible technology, I actually have hope that we can peacefully opt into this new parallel system and rebuild an economy essentially from scratch on more sound footing on concrete as opposed to the quicksand we're currently built on.
Yeah, I do want to spend some time talking about what's happening in federal finances. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit more about what, what. So you obviously you wrote a story, I'm guessing, about Bitcoin, which is what first sort of turned you on to it as an asset. Can you tell me a little bit about your discovery of this and 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 the rabbit hole that led you down? Sure. So I actually heard about it from friends. I was living in Sacramento, California, covering uh, California's capital, legislature, breaking news, all of that. Uh, but I had a lot of friends in San Francisco who worked in the tech industry. And uh, one weekend, I just remember they were talking about cryptocurrency and Coinbase and something called Mt. Gox, where someone lost some money. Uh, so it sparked curiosity for sure. But at the time, I thought with so many other people think that this is this could be hacked. Um, it's a scam, or maybe it's just like stocks. And and I didn't know a lot about the stock market at the time, unfortunately, because I didn't have great financial literacy in my uh, in my education. And uh, and then I had a mentor of mine give me the book, The Bitcoin Standard. And at first I resisted it because I thought it was a computer science or programming book and I don't have a technical background. But one day I sat down and I read it and it was like a veil was lifted from my eyes. And I thought, oh my goodness, I why, why did I never learn about the history of money? Why did I never spend time studying the fact that we went off a gold standard and what that really means, what the consequences could be, how that has impacted nations that have um, diluted their currencies and debased their currencies in the past? What is Bitcoin? and how could it possibly address this? So I became very hungry for more information, really just consuming everything I could before and after work. And then I pitched a story. I wanted to cover it as a journalist. I was able to do one story at that in, at that time in the news market, but you know, it just wasn't the priority of the of the news markets to cover this space. And uh, and throughout my career after that, I also I just I found my passion was growing, but I didn't have a way to really engage in that passion through my my journalism and my reporting, which is why I started my podcast and basically did it as a hobby, not expecting the side hustle to become my full-time job. And and so at this point, what I think the one thing that that's that can be challenging for some people is is how you know how they can understand this thing. And so so go a little bit more into into how it's created how it's mined and and how and how the the algorithm basically limits you to that 21 million coins in this case yeah, sure. So first of all, I just want to let people know that this can all seem intimidating and techy, especially for folks like me who didn't have that sort of background of engineering, computer science. But with time, it is actually very, very simple. Uh, and I want to remind people that there are a lot of technologies out there that we use. We take advantage of every single day and we don't necessarily know how they're built and constructed. I don't know how the camera is technically designed and, and constructed that I'm looking at right now or my iPhone at a very technical level, but I get tremendous value out of it. Now, of course, with something like where you're going to trust your money, you probably want to study a little bit more, right? So I took the next steps to really learn what is the blockchain? Okay, well, the blockchain is actually a digital ledger. It is a series of transactions that are chained together in a series of blocks. And that ledger is owned by everyone and no one. It is distributed around the entire world. And anyone running this open source Bitcoin software has access to the ledger. So I run a full node. I essentially, uh, a node runs the Bitcoin software and has a copy of the entire full ledger on their computer. And every time a uh, block is added, everybody on the network has to agree to it, has to agree that that block of transactions will be added to the chain and then they move on to the next one. Uh, a new block is added approximately every 10 minutes 
And it is all operated on this ingenious algorithm that was designed, created by Satoshi Nakamoto and released into the world in about 2008 through the white paper, which is actually right behind me. Uh, and the process for uh, being able to add blocks is called Bitcoin mining. It's done by these super fast computers called ASICs, and they're essentially guessing for a very, very big number. Before I used to uh, hear words like crypto cryptographic puzzle or really, really difficult math problem. It's honestly even simpler than that. It's like rolling a dice and trying to get a number. And once one of those, um, one of those computers hits a number, then they are able to add a block of transactions to that ledger. And one way that I want everyone to understand the consensus mechanism, um, which is really important, this proof of work that you did the work, you put in the energy to try to mine and guess for the number, but then every single computer, every single node on the network has to say, yes, that is a valid block. We can verify that it is true and, 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 uh, and accurate, and we can add it to the blockchain. Um, Think of it like a Rubik's cube or even like a bike lock. You can have a combination, right? And let's say it's a very, very long combination that's bigger than a number that a human brain can comprehend. But as soon as someone hits the number, the bike lock, it unlocks, right? And everyone who's looking at the lock can verify, oh yes, that was the right combination because it clearly unlocked the lock. Or you can see a Rubik's cube and say, oh, that was the right combination because now all the colors are in line. It works in the same way. Every computer can verify that a block was mined accurately so that it's added to the chain and then everyone updates their ledger. So and it's it an incredibly amazing- and it gets mm -hmm. more and more difficult as it progresses. Yes. Yeah, so and the more computers that are on the network, the harder that number is, the longer that number is, the harder it is to solve. If if computers are removed from the network mining Bitcoin, like what happened when China banned mining, yep. so the hash rate oh, dropped, the computing yep. power dropped, the number became easier to solve so that you consistently remain on that, that issuance basis of every 10 minutes is a block. And in terms of the ledger, I think one of the things that it's important for listeners to consider is that most of our businesses are conducted with some form of a ledger. You go to a yes. title company, it's essentially a ledger. The bank is a ledger. And and yes. what makes it work is the fact that these large single institutions are trustworthy. And what you're saying when you talk about distributing this ledger across multiple multiple people, you know, if one person maybe can cheat, but everybody can't cheat. And right. so and there has to be full consensus. Is that correct? Correct. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And now, and no one has to trust anyone and no one has to ask for permission, which is very different than the banking system. Now, in terms of digital assets, um, have you read uh, Going Infinite yet? I have. Yes. Yeah. Phenomenal book. It was it's Sam Bankman for those. It's it's uh, uh, Michael Lewis. That's yes. uh, FTX, Sam Bankman Freed. You know, one of the things that to me stuck out is so you've got this, you essentially have this digital asset, but you've got to put it somewhere. So the exchanges have to be trustworthy because in the case of you know FTX, it wasn't. They basically essentially stole customer funds at the at the end of it. Talk about so you got this digital asset. Where do you put it? Well, so I th I think that that's what's confusing with people because um, Bitcoin is not like a 
it's not like a file, right? And, and this was the amazing thing that Satoshi, one of Satoshi's most brilliant in, in inventions is the fact that you can send value that truly leaves you in a digital way and arrives with someone else and everyone can verify that the value was transferred. Because before, um, this is the this is the double spend problem that was solved with Bitcoin. It was a it was a computer science program for many decades. If I send you a file, like an MP3 or a movie or a piece of paper or a Word document rather, there's a copy that remains on my computer, right? So now we both have it. So you can't have that with money because then then both people can spend it. But essentially with Bitcoin, it's UTXOs, it's it's outputs. So it's it's not like a physical file that is that is sent. And that maybe gets in the weeds for for those that aren't technical, which which I totally understand. But um, but I think more you're more so getting into the into the question of where where do you purchase Bitcoin, right? Because you have to, there's only a couple of ways that you can get Bitcoin. You can mine it, you can expend energy to try to guess at this very large number and actually mine it, but it's harder and harder to do that. Or you can purchase it and and you could do that through an exchange or you can do it peer to peer. So there are places where if you know someone who has Bitcoin, you can exchange value if they're willing to sell their Bitcoin and you decide the you guys decide the exchange rate. But most people purchase on exchanges, on third parties that are very similar to retail banks. And a lot of those have come under scrutiny. Some of them completely have blown up, uh, including FTX, which we, we were just talking about. So you have to be very, very careful. I, I always take self-custody and I know that that's another level up of, you know, people just entering the space. Okay, I'm ready to buy. Great. But there is that third step because if you are buying Bitcoin and leaving it on an exchange, you technically don't hold the keys to it. And so the Bitcoin exists within the network and you can verify that someone has the key to it. So perhaps you're trusting your custodian, but until you take self-custody, technically that Bitcoin is not in your possession. You're, you're allowing someone to take custody of it for you. So the safest is to become your own bank. I do multi-sig custody where I don't have a central point of failure. Um, and I trust the exchange that, that I purchase my Bitcoin. But again, that's that takes that extra step of research because you have to be very careful and and avoid the companies that are offshore, maybe dealing with a lot of regulatory issues and uh, and lawsuits, which many of them are, including uh, obviously FTX was dealing with a lot of that. But but it is an area that you don't want to just look at and and purchase willy nilly, not knowing how you're going to be able to take self custody. Some platforms don't even allow you to take self custody; they they hold your keys for you, and you don't want that. So to give an example, perhaps that some people might be able to relate to a little bit better is, is, you know, you've got, you've got a couple options. Let's say you want to buy gold, physical metal, mm -hmm. you can keep it in your own house, in your own safe, or you can put it in a safety deposit box, mm -hmm. or you can have another custody company custody that asset for you. Is it a similar type of thing? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think Bitcoin is too dissimilar. And, and I mentioned earlier in this, in this podcast that all, all of our money is electronic already. Not a lot of us have a stash of cash. I mean, maybe some of the people watching do, but you're essentially trusting the bank that they have the money when you go to withdraw it. But the crazy thing with our banking system that I learned through studying Bitcoin is because of fractional reserve banking right now, all of the major banks in the United States only have a tiny, tiny percentage of our money on hand. So if everyone were to go try to withdraw their cash, they would not be able to. Now with Bitcoin, what's so amazing is because it is a bearer instrument, you can take self-custody 
and it's yours at any time. It is in your position. You can be your own bank. Whereas if you trust a third party, like a bank, the money may be there one day, or you may be not able to access it the next. And I know that that maybe sounds dramatic, but we've seen accounts frozen and people unable to access their, their uh, funds in different countries, including Lebanon this year in Turkey, Cyprus, many years ago, everyone knew about the bail bail in for banks there. Uh, even in Canada, people's accounts were frozen. So even though we don't want to think about the idea of financial censorship like that, it's not out of the question. So you just, it, it's really important to have a form of technology that is resistant to censorship. That is a bearer instrument that you can actually custody yourself as a form of digital property. And so, so do you think that, um, you know, the one thing I, th I think has been interesting in the last, as I've been looking at the last several years, you know, Bitcoin seems to me that it's been tied more to liquidity than it has as a safe harbor asset, say like gold, for example. And, but that in the last year, so that seems like it's changing a little bit. Do, do, are you seeing that as well? Yes and no. So I agree that it has been correlated with liquidity and it has been the uh, it, it has been the beneficiary of a decade of QE. Right. I mean, Bitcoin was born into the great financial crisis and they initiated the money printer and really didn't stop until last year. So obviously, Bitcoin has benefited from that. Now, you look at gold. Gold has not performed very well over the last 10 years. Has it been a hedge to inflation and over the long run? Sure. But look at gold's performance next to Bitcoin's. I mean, Bitcoin is the best performing asset of the entire last decade. And even when asset classes like equities and some of the, you know, the Magnificent Seven and the big tech stocks that we're familiar with, those have obviously also benefited from liquidity and money printing. But Bitcoin is on a completely different level. And one thing that I also find really interesting that I hope people think about is inflation. We talked about it earlier. They're constantly diluting the supply of money, issuing new currency, going further into debt, running high deficits. Most people think of inflation as that 2% target that the Federal Reserve gives us, which is a pretty arbitrary number. Uh, you know, who decided that it's going to be 2% because basically compound that over the years. And, and what is the half-life of your dollars that, that starts to come into play? So again, people are, are trying to get yield and they're trying to beat inflation. They've been going into equities. The S&P 500 has on average had an a, a appreciation rate of about 7%. Well, guess how much the monetary inflation of the, of the base supply of money been? about 7%. About 7%. Yeah. And I was actually going to bring that up. If you look back, um, if you look at physical gold, for example, if you go back to when, since we got pulled off the gold standard, now they haven't moved in correlation. There's been periods of time where gold has made these phenomenal moves. And there's been periods of time from say 1980 to 2001, where it was a completely dead asset. You got your, you got your tail handed to you, but the average annualized rate of return on gold has also been about the growth of the money supply. Which, which is the S&P, same thing. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of tying yourself to what to what yeah. the, the federal government and the Federal Reserve are going to be doing in terms of increasing money supply. And, and for me, that was like, it's like, oh my gosh, we're basically just keeping track. We're just treading water. And then you look at something like Bitcoin, it's performed on average 40 to 50% year over year. And yes, certain stocks have outperformed. But, but that turns, you know, the average hairdresser, the average accountant, the average doctor into a stock picker. I mean, we should have better money than that, right? Um, so I really, this is one of the reasons why I get so excited because if you just take a small percentage, the, the asymmetric 
benefits of having that in, in a risk-adjusted portfolio have really, um, it's been enormously beneficial for people, all ages, all backgrounds. Um, it's it's a way to save for the future. And we really desperately need that. Well, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit here. And I'm curious what you say about these things. You can, let's say that if you look at any currency, for example, the government doesn't want competition. I mean, they want to be able to, to control the currency, control how much of it is issued. At what point does an asset class like Bitcoin get in the crosshairs? And it could be under the guise of, a lot of terrorism around the world is funded with Bitcoin because it can be anonymous, not always anonymous, but it can be. What's the risk, do you think, of the regulators coming in and saying, you know what, enough of this, we're going to shut this thing down? You know, I'm, I used to be worried about that um, before I, I think I, I took the extra time to really study Bitcoin, as well as the history of the early Internet. There was a lot of pushback with early movements of, of cryptography and encryption and and technology always wins. The better technology always wins. And this is a technology that I think the United States will want to embrace from a uh, strategic standpoint, from a national security standpoint, um, for an entrepreneurial standpoint to encourage prosperity and, and economic vitality. So I'm, I'm not as worried about that, actually. Uh, I've heard presidential candidates who talk about potentially incorporating Bitcoin in something like a basket of commodities that our currency is eventually tied to. Uh, unfortunately, you you can't beat a, a great technology once it's taken hold with enough people. And again, this is open source, it's borderless, it's permissionless. And so if you shut it down, if you try to, you're going to be creating a disadvantage for, um, for your own nation, as well as creating an incentive for people to leave and for other nations to take over. So uh, with something that is completely decentralized, I don't think a government can stop it. They would be shutting themselves out of a lot of opportunity. And I don't think Think we're actually even moving in that direction because if you see uh the the regulatory developments that have happened over the last two years it's really um made it a spotlight that bitcoin is is different bitcoin is the true digital commodity bitcoin is the least controversial bitcoin is the one with the least amount of uh, of issues surrounding it and it will be probably integrated into the global financial system um I think that with the ETFs that are going to be passed, uh, that's going to incorporate it into more institutions and uh, treasury reserves. So I think actually we're moving in the opposite direction. And I would be more worried about it if I lived in a country that had more uh, author authoritarian leadership, which still billions of people around the world live in very, very oppressive regimes who are probably going to be very, very anti-Bitcoin. Now, what happened? Because I don't, I don't have any clue the answer to this. So I know that China had a crackdown. Mm -hmm. on uh on the bitcoin miners specifically or cryptocurrency mining. in general mining yeah they banned bitcoin mining and yet still about 20 percent of the hash rate is is there and people are mining it okay so they are so they basically found a way around that um yeah. how about in, in other countries around the world has anyone banned the usage of it by their citizens uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think a lot of countries, including Nigeria um, and other nations that are trying to move forward with the CBDC, they're right. less in favor of it. But it's really it's really hard to ban something that is code. You know, it's a form of speech. It is a form of digital property. So it's it's far less controversial than I think a lot of nations make it out to be. And why wouldn't you, if you were here in the United States, whether you're on the left or the right or somewhere in the middle, why wouldn't you want a, an asset that everyone has access to that can 
empower them to be able to save for their future so that they have money so that they can actually spend into the economy and produce value and produce goods and services. Uh, so I really don't understand what the pushback would be. And again, we need to do something because on a global level, we've gone so far into debt that it is hurting our our uh, ability to plan for for a future as both a nation as well as the individuals in inside this country and and something needs to be done to strengthen our economic outlook because right now we can't continue paying our visa with our mastercard with our american express right other nations are not going to look at treasuries as a safe haven asset anymore and and they they're starting to de-dollarize more and more. Some of them are talking about a, a basket of currencies or something tied to gold. I don't know how that's going to play out, especially in a digital world with nations that don't trust each other. And again, this is not, none of this is going to happen overnight. The global reserve currency is the dollar, and it's very entrenched in, in the financial system around the world. And 80% of transactions, I believe, globally take place in the dollar, and there's a lot of dollar-denominated debt. But it's a trend. It's 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 a cyclical, secular trend that is moving in a certain direction. And I do believe that Bitcoin will be a global reserve asset. I believe more and more nations will put it on the balance sheet. More and more are starting to mine it and starting uh, partnerships with mining companies, even in order to be able to facilitate mining in their in their nations and in their um, sovereign regions. So this is going to be an area that continues to grow and evolve over the next ten years. And I think it'll look very very different ten years from now. So do you think in terms of the recent rise, because I think Bitcoin last 12 months, 15,000 to say 36,000 where it is today, is that because we potentially have this enormous demand that's going to come online if they do, in fact, start issuing ETFs with this? Or is it because, you know, quite frankly, federal government's got about eight to 10 trillion, depending on the number that you're looking at, of debt they've got to refinance in the next 12 months, plus another two trillion in deficit spending. They've got to they've got to meet that as well. Is it is it? I guess my question is, is it more, uh, is it the fear of the greed? Is it the fear that the treasury is going to continue to sort of erode away and lose its value? Or is it the greed that, hey, we got this asset now that might be basically available to somebody in their E-Trade account where they can go buy an ETF that is backed by this thing? What, what do you think is the driver here? Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, number go up certainly always helps. The The most FOMO is when it's at the top and people are trying to pile in. But at the same time, I think there is greater and greater recognition that the current track that we're on is not sustainable. And we can't just keep increasing interest rates and and keep the the deficits growing because at some point, you know, the buck stops and, uh, and we're going to have a financial collapse. So I think it's a little bit of both. And I don't know if you've read the really good book, Psychology of Money, but I think it's really fascinating. And when you when you look yeah. back, everything is so much clearer when you when you you, you look in hindsight. But when you're in the moment, uh, psychology is a really interesting thing. Beha human behavior is something you can't always predict. So I think that that's what what will you know define Bitcoin over the next ten years is what will humans do in the face of growing uncertainty and growing economic fragility around the world and instability. And thank goodness that we have this asset class that if you study it, I don't know anyone that has spent ten thousand hours like me studying Bitcoin who says, no, 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 I'm going to pass on this. Well, you know, I, I do think that there's, you know, there's a there there in terms of cryptos for sure. And and you look at, you know, through history, having a, having in safe haven asset has always been somewhat, has been, it hasn't been somewhat, it has been important. If you look at people that arrived in the United States off the boats from the, v, after the Vietnam War, they had gold coins sewn into their dresses. Um, this I think is a little bit different because of the ability to sort of transfer it instantly. You don't have to, you don't have to move it. You know what I mean? You can, you can transfer it instantly around the world. How now in your world, in the crypto space, has, have you had now 
a lot more interest in the last say week or so, uh, just given the fact that, you know, we had a treasury auction earlier this week that didn't go quite so well. And, and there's some concern around, there's some concern, you know, if you look at it, put it this way, here's what keeps me up at night is you have right now, we've got 33, 34 trillion, depending on the day of debt. You've, the United States has had enormous privilege being the issuer of the of the reserve currency of the world. We've had enormous cr- privilege of being the issuer of the debt that is essentially the reserve mm-hmm. store value around the world. Yeah. But now we're at this point where, you know, 34 trillion, three and a half percent interest, you're talking a trillion dollars to service this. And the the federal government is going to have to refi again, eight to 10 trillion over the next 12 months. So it's a boatload of debt. There's got to be buyers for it. And the listeners that that uh, that basically aren't quite sure what I'm talking about, this will probably hit in a couple of weeks. So earlier this week, there's was there an auction of 30 year treasuries. It's um, it wasn't a failed auction. I've heard stuff like that. It was not that there was there was plenty of buyers there, but the buyers, the buyers were not willing. Uh, basically, they, they they demanded a higher interest rate than anyone was expecting to take on this debt, and you know, the, the, and that's it's a big deal. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a really big deal. So. And I think it was the worst auction they'd had in like a decade or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. and, and and you had, obviously, I think it was uh, Moody's came and they put us on negative watch as opposed, it wasn't a downgrade, but they put us on negative watch. And it's, it's the last rating agency yeah. that, that had us at uh, at AAA. Is, is this something now, because this is a whole new, we're kind of in this new thing here where if you look, even in 2020, we had boatloads of debt, but you had the 10 year 50 basis points, you know, to, to finance this with a 10 year four and a half now, is a, it's a big difference. It really yeah. matters. Is, is this what's, is there chatter about this in your world? Oh yeah. So my last two episodes were about this. I talked about the uh, half failed treasury auction as well as the Moody's downgrade. Failure. We don't downgrade. Failure. <laughs> yeah, I call it a half failure. Um, yeah. This just shows the growing credit risk that the United States uh, has in terms of the world stage. I mean, now I, I mentioned in my last episode that ten countries have a higher credit rating now than the United States, and we were that sovereign, supreme, pristine collateral with our treasury. So there are cracks under the surface. Again, nothing nothing that's uh, a, an earthquake that's going to necessarily happen tomorrow. Uh, but this is a this is a trend that's moving in a certain direction. You just pointed out those deficits. We're paying more and more on just servicing the debt, our interest payments. It's it's ballooning to an amount that is bigger than our military budget. It's unsustainable. And so the reason I was smiling toward the end of your question is because thank goodness that we have something like Bitcoin because these treasuries are worth hundreds of trillions of dollars in terms of an asset class, okay? If you take even just a small percentage of that and people start to move their wealth into Bitcoin, that is a significant appreciation uh, and upside potential for something like Bitcoin. And the fact of the matter is, no matter what they do, no matter how how they want to stay tighter for longer, higher for longer, at some point, they will not be able to sustain it. Our debt level is too high they will have to come in and liquefy the market and print. I don't know what that event will be. I I hope it's not some sort of massive credit event that sparks something worse than 2008, although certainly some analysts are predicting it. Uh, But unfortunately, we're on this, this spiral of issuing more and more and more debt to pay off previous debt. And so the higher the interest rates go or the the higher they 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 stay here, it it has an increasingly tighter effect over time. And we just simply cannot afford it. We simply cannot afford it. So I well, wouldn't be surprised if we have more issues in in treasury bond auctions. And I think that eventually something will happen where they have to come in and print. And then and then what does that mean? Right? All the stuff we talked about before, diluting the currency, asset inflation, 
number go up with Bitcoin? Yeah, I think to, to me, at least in, in my line of work, the biggest story for sure, I'm 50, you know, so of my lifetime, you know, having been in the business now since I was in my early 20s, is what's happened in the bond market. I mean, we've never had the worst year you ever had for the aggregate bond index in the 1970s is down like seven. We're down 13 last year in that. You had three successive years of, of negative rates of return. You look at the 10 year, the annualized negative rate of return of the last three years has been seven and a half percent. And this is from the asset that that many institutions are holding as you know, mm -hmm. as as their major store value. And I think that's that's been the massive thing. And, you know, and I keep getting I keep getting people, you know, coming into my office and wholesalers and things saying, hey, you gotta add some duration because my duration is low. It's 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 under it's under three overall for the entire book. I don't know if compliance is gonna make me pull that out or not. But but my why? Why would I? You know, why because you you're basically at this, you've got this this situation set up where one of three things has to happen. You need radical draconian cuts to the federal yeah. budget right you you need enormous economic growth to grow your way out of it or you've got to monetize it right and and to get exactly. you know draconian cuts maybe you get a sea change maybe that happens i don't see that happening rapid economic growth you then you need to do things on the other end in terms of you know decreasing regulation and, and kind of you know letting it rip if you're going to get that the most likely thing i mean the treasury's not going to default it's just a question of who comes in and buys it because the foreigners are not, they're not showing up to the auctions anymore to the degree that they were. And so that's, that's, um, that this, it's, the, it's, and it's just at the front end, but I think it's the financial story that's unfolding in any of our lifetimes because no one's been long, alive long enough to see this happen in the past. And you had a 100%. very, yeah, and you had a very orderly transition. Your last superpower was Great Britain, really orderly transition to us. Because mm -hmm. essentially we were first cousins and the, the future could potentially look a lot different. And again, I'm an optimistic person because I do think that when things shouldn't persist, they won't. And there's a lot of there's a lot of things that I think that 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 is happening in our financial system, quite frankly, that shouldn't persist and they won't. Right. And, and, you know, if you look at and from the equity standpoint, anytime there's been a currency crisis or, or, or concern about that, equity markets tend to go parabolic. So, you know, because the money, again, it's that wash thing that we talked about. Money's going to flow somewhere. But I, I'm very, I'm really curious what's going to happen to, to you know, this asset class that you've spent your career covering once this becomes mainstream in the form of an ETF. I think it's, mm -hmm. uh, again, it's not a recommendation to buy or sell it or whatever, because I, I don't know that for sure. But I think how it, play, how it plays out from here is going to be pretty fascinating. So what's your, um, you know, what's, what's your outlook for the future in terms of how do you think this all shakes out? Well, going back to to what you were just alluding to, um, we have a sovereign debt crisis, and and maybe before it was more of an orderly transition out of uh, Britain being the U.S. global reserve currency or the global reserve currency, but at the same time, that was emerging out of a world war, right? And many people just feel like that we're on the brink of a of a lot of that kind of volatility here. And now, so um, I would expect a lot of uncertainty going forward. We've kicked the can up to the sovereign level. And so the government will have to come in and print. And, and that's not good news for, for people who hold cash. Uh, the bondholders will be left holding the bag eventually. And, uh, and, and what you said earlier about there's no appetite for cutting the deficits because politically no one wants to think about the long term because the 
the long term means that there's going to be short term pain and you might not get votes, right? If you if you call out the truth, you're not going to be able to cut the the obligations and the social security and the things we actually need to cut. Stanley Druckenmiller talks about this a lot. No one has the appetite to admit that and to make those changes. So what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to come in and debase the currency, monetize the debt, QE, infinity is what we talk about in Bitcoin. Um, so I really urge people to just take the time to to study something like Bitcoin. And uh, and I think that the future will be both volatile in terms of fiat currencies, but I think you know one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, and and the the price in those volatile fiat currencies is going to continue to go up as people look to this alternative as a as a as a flight to quality, as a flight to uh, safety in order to preserve their wealth into the future. I'm certainly going to be one of them. I think it's really sad what's happened to my generation. I have a lot of peers who have worked so hard for the last almost you know two decades of their adult lives and they still feel so behind and unable to uh, obtain something that once represented the American dream. And and I hope that Bitcoin helps them. I, I want to encourage everybody to just take the time to learn about it, download a wallet on your phone, send someone some Bitcoin. Uh, you can purchase the same amount as you'd, you'd go out and get a coffee. I, there's a lot of unit bias, people thinking, oh, I need to have enough money for one Bitcoin. You don't. Uh, I hope one day we're, we're accounting in Satoshis so that people feel a little bit better about it. But yeah, it's, it's an incredible space to be in. And I will certainly be on the front lines watching how, how it gets integrated into the global financial system, because I do think it will be a core asset going forward. Well, I'll, I'll end with this one with a little bit of optimism. I think it was Churchill. I've, I've used this quote several times. And he said that you can always count on Americans to do the wrong thing until they have to do the right thing. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I am I am absolutely optimistic about the future. I think that particularly in my line of work, if you don't believe that human beings are going to continue to innovate and grow and do great things and create new efficiencies and what the hell's the point? You know, what I mean, you, yeah. you've, you've got it. You've got to believe in that. And I and I'm also a believer that technology is going to solve a lot of our problems. I think mm -hmm. it's a it's a great equalizer. This the iPhone that is in my pocket gives me access to more information than no one in the world had 10 years ago. It's incredible. Yeah. And it also and it also gives me at least the opportunity to access the same platform, the same platforms that people with a higher, greater degree of visibility have. So, so I think that's it again, it's not, it's not all doom and gloom, but I think that um, it's going to be very interesting whether it's Bitcoin or it's something else. The world does continue to adapt. Money continues to adapt. It continues. Capital always goes where it's treated best in the end, in the, in the end of, you know, all this. So I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how this, how this all plays out. But Natalie, if people want to listen to more of your work, reach out to you, learn more about uh, what you're doing, how they do that. Uh, yeah. And can I say just one last thing about yeah, revolutionary technologies? You know, I come from a, a news background. And when you look at the history of how journalists and, and legacy media, including the New York Times, have covered groundbreaking technologies, I think you have a really important lesson in in how wrong some people can be or the the mainstream view or the the general public can be because we rejected electricity we rejected airplane technology we rejected the early internet the, there were uh, writers and journalists who said that it would be no no um more influential in society than a fax machine and yet it's transformed all of our lives so i really encourage people to just not sleep on this because it is a transformative technology in the same way that the printing press changed our lives the internet uh, electricity all of that i think it's so incredible so i hope people check out my work podcast is called coin stories it's available on audio as well as video and i'm very active on twitter x at nap Brunel. 
Awesome. And again, Natalie, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, terrific conversation. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Brent, for facilitating it. As always, another fascinating episode. You know, before I go, I wasn't going to raise this, but let me let me bring it up uh, really quickly. I think some of the pushback that you alluded to earlier to to the Bitcoin has to do with the notion that a nation's coin is its sovereignty. And it has to do with the notion that you surrender your coin, you surrender your sovereignty. And that was another word that was used a lot. So that, you know, I wonder if that's not an issue. Well, I know it's an issue. Whether it's a real issue or not is another one. How, how do you answer the people who say, hey, Natalie, if you give up the sovereignty of your coin I, I, by going to something like a cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, you are giving up your own national sovereignty. What's your answer to the issue of sovereignty? Well, I, I think that, first of all, Bitcoin is a form of property and it it is rooted in those natural rights that we have to property, to sovereignty, individual sovereignty. And so when you move it on a national level, something like a, a form of currency that can never be debased, that you control, I think there's nothing more powerful than being able to store value, store a nation's value in an incorruptible form of technology, a form of money. So I think that it's going to empower both people at that individual level but also the nations that embrace it. I think it will be a powerful technology for using in a world of cyber warfare and cyber attacks because Bitcoin is that truth network where you can verify things using cryptography. I think it will be needed in order to get us out of this debt cycle and spiral that we're in. I think it can be used to rebuild prosperity at home. And I don't think that we need to be in, in a world necessarily where we have 160 floating currencies. Uh, we could all be on the Bitcoin standard, one currency that is ruled by physics and by the rules of, uh, of, of the world as opposed to man. And I think that there's something really incredible about that. So maybe someday we will be on a Bitcoin standard. Maybe we will still have fiat currencies that we use for transacting and as a medium of exchange to facilitate faster payments. But ultimately, in a digital world, I think that the micropayments will take over through AIs and, and through a, a digitally native currency like Bitcoin. So that's very far out. But ultimately, I think Bitcoin will make all of us more sovereign, both at a national as well as individual level. Terrific. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, Brent, you've told everybody how they can get a hold of Natalie and pursue, uh, you know, listening to her and learning more about her. Uh, but why don't we, before we go, why don't we have you tell us how to get a hold of you for those who might be listening to this conversation and want a further conversation? Sure. From a social media standpoint, the only one I'm on is LinkedIn, but I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Number here is 602-255-0555. Either Susan or Andy or Kayla or myself will pick up the phone. Uh, website is mpadvisorsaz or smartmoneysimplified.com and all our contact information is there. And if this uh, if this you know, generated any thoughts or, or, or things that people want to discuss in greater detail, happy to have that conversation. Fantastic. And thank you, Brent. Thank you, listeners, for taking the time to listen to the program today. If you are not already a subscriber, it's easy. Hit the subscribe button. It's right there. Hit it. That way you don't have to wonder about when or where Brent's next episode is going to come out because you'll be notified immediately. If you're so moved, we'd ask you to rate the conversation, rate the podcast, spread the word about it. Meantime, on behalf of Brent and everybody at MP Advisors AZ, I'm Bill Tucker, wishing you the best and reminding you, do not wait. Live your best life today. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.